0: are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit HarvestBrampton.ca. Father, we thank you that you are the one who carries us, you are the one who helps us moment by moment. Lord, there isn't a second of our life those who are trusting in you as your children, who go without you by their side, carrying us through every valley, carrying us through every descent and ascent. God, we praise you that this is the kind of God you are, the God who never leaves nor forsakes, who never abandons nor departs, but is always with us. And God, we thank you that you have not left us. But you've given us even your word and your spirit. And so we pray this morning as we look into your word, would you speak to us? And your spirit would help us see all that it's saying. God, help transform us by this word, which is exactly the purposes for which you send it out. You always do what you want to do with your word. And so you say, Lord God, that we are sanctified by your truth. So Father, sanctify us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can grab your Bibles and flip them open to 1 Samuel 21, and if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Our ushers are eager to give one to you. If you don't own one, you get to keep it, but just let them know by raising your hand, and they'll put a Bible into it. Well, we're going to pick up things in chapter 21. We last left off in chapter 20, so it's a good spot to pick things up. And there is where we're going to keep reading about David. Now, everyone knows it's a hard thing to tell the truth. Telling the truth is a hard thing. It doesn't matter if you're an athlete that finds difficulty telling the truth about whether they have taken performance-enhancing drugs or not, or whether you're a musician and whether you've stolen lyrics to fill out a song or not. Or if you're a company, and just admitting to the truth that you've been price-fixing for years, it's hard. And not just for big companies and professionals, but it's hard for us. It's hard for us in our home when it's hard for me to admit that I left the water running or my clothes on the floor. It's hard to tell the truth. And when we are put in those situations where we're faced with a decision, do I or do I not tell the truth, I kind of wonder why. Why is it so hard for me just to say the truth? Why? Why is it so hard? And typically, always, it's because we're afraid. Fear is behind this pressure to lie. I don't know what's going to happen if I say the truth. I might lose my oranges. I might lose money. I might lose a friend. Or if the stakes are really, really high, I might lose my home. I might lose my job, I might lose a loved one, I might even lose my own life. And in those situations when the stakes are high, we can even convince ourselves, it's basically necessary to lie. I, I've got to lie, I've got no other choice, there's no other options for me. I've got to lie. And here, in our text here today, in 1 Samuel 21, we see David in a similar situation, He's feeling a lot of pressure. He's put in a spot where he's tempted to lie. But David, he's been trusting God really up to this point. It's been astounding, really, as to what he's gone through in the last few weeks. He has had an absolutely insane last few weeks. And now he's hitting a wall. Now, kind of spiritually, he blew a tire, a tire, and he's just kind of wondering, I don't know what to do next. This is, this is enough. I don't want this anymore. I don't know what's going to happen. He's just had Saul throw spears at him. Not once or twice. Three times he's had spears thrown at him. Saul has tried to murder his wife, has set an ambush around David's house to murder David. He's tried to murder his best friend, Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's own son, and who, David's wife happens to be Saul's own daughter. That's how messed up Saul is. Saul has sent waves, three waves of soldiers to go and capture and kill David at this point. And that didn't work out, so Saul himself went and personally hunted down David to kill him. But God protected David. David kept providing protection for him. And David is now fled, and he's really beginning to wonder, I don't know how long this can continue. I don't know if I can keep just trusting God. I mean, things are, I'm just barely escaping, barely making it out alive. I don't know if this is going to keep happening. And so he's afraid, and Honestly, he's confused. He doesn't even know why Saul's angry with him. He's only done good to Saul. And when we're confused and when we're afraid, panic can set in and fear can start rising. And we can be tempted to do and say things we normally wouldn't. And just as we see David here, we ourselves, we can feel the same thing. Where in our fear, we're tempted to trust ourselves. That in my fear, I am tempted to trust myself. And so the story begins in verse 1. David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Now some background is, is really helpful here. David is coming to Nob. And Nob, I don't know why it's called Nob. It's just called Nob. Nob is the town about three miles south of Gibeah. Gibeah is where Saul has set up his capital in the territory of Benjamin, and that's where David has just fled from after a conversation with Jonathan. You'll remember they made a covenant with one another. And so David is just fleeing now, heading south on the road, and he comes to the town of Nob. Now, Nob is important because that is where the tabernacle is. You'll remember that the tabernacle used to be in Shiloh, where About 40 or 50 years earlier, there was a priest named Eli. Eli and his sons, two of which were Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas, depending on how you pronounce it. They were there ministering in the Lord. But because of their egregious sin, God would have it no more. And so the Philistines came and attacked. And both of Eli's sons died. The ark was captured by the Philistines. And Eli fell over and broke his neck and died. And sometime after that, the tabernacle without the ark was moved from Shiloh inland a little bit, away from Philistine territory, to Nob, just south of Gibeah. And all of the priestly family, all of the remaining descendants of Eli, also packed up and moved, and they're now in Nob. And now you have Ahimelech, a descendant of Eli, is now the main priest there. And he sees David coming into town. Alone, which is kind of weird. Five-star generals don't typically travel alone. They have usually an entourage, some some bodyguards with them. But here's David, one of the highest-ranking officials in Saul's army, traveling alone. And so he asks him, why are you alone? And David, we know he's running. He's running for his life from Saul. Saul. But Ahimelech doesn't know that. And David doesn't know, honestly, if he can trust Ahimelech. Ahimelech's brother, Ahijah, is a spiritual advisor for Saul. And so maybe maybe Ahimelech's also in cahoots with Saul. And David's confused, remember. And he's afraid and he's panicking. I don't know if I can trust this guy. And so he's at a crossroads. He's got to make a decision. Do I tell the truth or do I lie? And in David's fear... He lies. He trusts himself to come up with a plan and he lies in order to provide for himself, to make provision for himself, to to really secure some things. It says here in verse 2 and 3, David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you have. This is no small fib. This isn't a half-truth or anything like that. I mean, where I come from growing up, this is called a whopper. This is a doozy. I mean, this is something that is not even close to the truth. David just outright lies. He says that he is actually on a mission for Saul. He is in such good report and in such a good position with Paul that or with Saul that Saul has entrusted a secret mission to David and to David alone rather than actually admitting that he's actually fleeing from Saul because he's in such bad report and bad position with Saul. And so this mission that David says that he's on is so secretive, I I can't talk about it, and so urgent that I need food and I need it right now. And so David is hoping that his lie will get him a couple of things, two things in particular that he's hoping will save him. And the first is food. David commands Ahimelech to give him five loaves Now, when you're in Nob, you know that the only bread in town is holy bread. There's no wonder bread, there's no any other bread. There's only holy bread. Holy bread because that's what was put in the tabernacle. You see, in the tabernacle, there was a table. And on that table, every week, hot, fresh loaves of bread, 12 of them, 12 big loaves of bread, were set in two piles in front of God's presence as a picture, as a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel that lived before God or in the presence of God. And every week, those, there would be 12 new fresh loaves that were baked and placed in front of God. And those 12 old loaves then would be taken and given to the priests. And the priests would receive them. And that would be a part of their food, their portion that they got. Then only priests could eat it. Priests couldn't sell it on discount. They couldn't, you couldn't go and steal it from them or anything like that. It was for the priests and for the priests alone and for their food so they could feed their family and their children. But what happens if you have someone come to a priest and he's in need and he doesn't have any food and he's hungry and he asks a priest for bread? What is the priest supposed to do? Is the priest just supposed to say, well, get a job, get your own bread, and harden his heart? No, he shows mercy. And that's exactly what Ahimelech does. He gives David five loaves of bread, he shows mercy to David. And this is so beautiful that Jesus, many years later, actually looks back and refers back to this very event. And he mentions how Ahimelech gave bread. David he showed mercy to David and he said that was a good and right and truthful thing to do even though David was lying through his teeth Ahimelech didn't know that he was showing mercy as a priest he gave of his own food food that was given to him he gave sacrificially holy bread to David Jesus loves this story for a lot of different reasons Not only because Jesus himself would eventually take five loaves of bread and multiply it to feed thousands and thousands of people, but that Jesus himself as a high priest who is called the bread of heaven, the holiest of all bread, his body, would take that body and lay it on a wooden table that we call a cross and give it for all the nations that all peoples would come and believe and trust in him and eat and live and be forgiven and given eternal life. Jesus loves this story about Ahimelech and his merciful, sacrificial love toward David. But David doesn't see all of this. David just wants some bread. He wants five loaves and he worked a lie to get them. And with a full stomach, he thinks that, well, maybe if the lie worked the first time, it'll work the second time. And I'm going to try to get one more thing. One more thing that David's hoping in that will save him. He's got some bread, and he tries the lie a second time. It says in verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me. Because the king's business required haste. Paul, Saul, or sorry, David here, he, he knows the, the lie worked once. And you know, lies are like that, right? Once you start, it's hard to stop, especially if the last time you lied worked or seemed to. So it just almost builds momentum. And so he lies in order to get not just bread, but a sword. And this sword, David is hoping, is that he's trusting in himself not only to get provision, but also protection. If I just had a sword, if I just had a weapon, I would be able to get my own means of protection. He doesn't believe God at this moment. His eyes are off the Lord. His eyes are on himself. God hasn't been I don't know if I can trust God to keep providing for me or to keep protecting me. I need to take matters into my own hands and fill them with bread and with a sword. And so you can even hear David's idolatry in his voice as Ahimelech then offers him a sword. Probably the only sword in all the village of Nob. He gives him a sword and you can hear the idolatry in David's voice that he's no longer At this moment, trusting in God, he's trusting in something else, trusting in himself to find the right kind of protection. He's hoping in, trusting in this sword. And he says in verse 9, Oh, there is none like that sword. Give it to me. You can see and hear David's idolatrous hope and trust in this sword. And what's so special about this sword? What kind of a sword is this that David wants so badly? Well, it's the sword of Goliath. It's Goliath's sword that Ahimelech had. You'll remember it was only a few months earlier that David had gone into battle and defeated Goliath with just a stone and a sling. And when God had guided that stone to exactly where it fell, onto the forehead of Goliath, and he he fell down dead... David rushed toward Goliath, pulled out Goliath's own sword and chopped off his head just to make sure. And then after that battle, in order to help all of Israel remember that it's God who wins the battles. Because David had gone into that battle with no sword, no shield, no armor. He just had God. And God was enough. And he went in, and he wanted all of Israel to remember that it's God who protects us. It's God who fights our battles. At some point after that battle, he took that sword and brought it to the tabernacle and dedicated it to God so that every time someone would come to the tabernacle, they would see the sword, and they would be reminded, yeah, it's God who protects us. It's God who provides for us. David knew the sword was there. He knew he could get bread. He knew he could get a sword. And it's so sad. And shocking, but here is David now taking the sword back and strapping it to his side and running away. His eyes are not on the Lord. He is not trusting in the Lord right now. He believes that with a little priestly bread in one hand and some Philistine steel in his other hand, that these will be better saviors than God to him. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, when we are scared, when we're in situations where we're fearful, it's hard to remember God's faithfulness. It's hard to remember how he has been good and faithful to us in the past. Because in the moment, it's all foggy. I I can't see his faithfulness. All I can see is the crisis right in front of me. And I'm scared. I I feel the fear rising within me. And I I don't know what to do. And sometimes I I lie or I, I go to things. I go to all sorts of different things that I'm hoping will save me or protect me or provide for me in some way. And in our moments of of fear, we we can learn a lot about ourselves and where we're tempted. Sometimes we're, we're tempted when we're afraid to... Uh, to go to other things. I, I may find my hope and security in my investments or RSPs or TFSAs because that's where, that's what's really going to protect me long term. That's where my security lies. Or maybe it's in my job. I just I've worked so hard and climbed so high that no one can really fire me. That's where my security lies. Or maybe I'm just feeling so afraid. I, I just want to escape. I want some comfort. And so I can go to food or Netflix or Xbox. That's what's going to comfort me. That, that's what's going to give me the provision of comfort and ease or, or just some, some relief or numb, some numbness of the pain that I'm feeling and the anxiety that I'm carrying. Those are these little messiahs that I'm tempted to go to. Please rescue me from this fear. Please rescue me from being afraid. And they leave us wanting. There's nothing inherently wrong or evil about any of these things. But when I take a good thing and I make it an ultimate thing. And put all my hope and trust in that thing. Well now I've twisted it into a bad thing. I'm trying to make it do what it was never meant to do. And I'm always left disillusioned and disappointed. Craving and wanting more and more. And here's David. He's now grabbed onto some bread, and grabbed onto a sword, and now he flees. And in his fear and unbelief, he flees for escape. He's trying to just run away now. He's just, I'm going to find the place of safety. I've got my own plan. I'm relying on my own wisdom, and I've come up with a place. I've mapped it out. I know where to go This is what's going to allow me to escape. This is where I can find some safety. And like a panicking horse that bolts through a fence and heads straight for a cliff and certain death, David now bolts out of the territory of Israel and heads straight to the Philistines, to a town called Gath. Now that's really odd that David would choose Gath because if you remember, Gath is where Goliath. Was from. And now David happens to have Goliath's sword, which was probably quite recognizable in that city because it was huge. It was a huge sword. And David himself was responsible for many a widow in that town, so he wasn't really liked in Gath. And according to David's thinking, he probably thought, surely this is the last place on earth that Saul would ever look for me it probably was. Who in the right mind would run into a lion's mouth? But this is exactly what David does. He's relying on his own wisdom and his own strategy and plan and cunning. And he's come up with a plan of escape. But when he arrives in Gath, it fails miserably. Verses 10 and 11 says that David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, "Uh, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. You know, in North Korea, if you're caught watching American music videos, you're arrested and thrown in concentration camps. But that is not the case here in Gath, it seems like the Philistines were very aware of all the songs that the Hebrews were singing, and they knew what the songs were singing about. They they knew the hero of those songs, and the hero was David. And David's hope here of trying to just kind of slide and sneak into Gath unnoticed on the DL fails, because all the officials are recognizing "This this is David. This is our, like, chief enemy here this is the commander of the army of Israel, why is he here? They recognize him, and they seize him, and capture him, and bring him before the king. And so in verse 12, it says, and David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Now, you and I, we can't read hearts. We don't know what goes on inside someone's heart or inside their head and what they're thinking. So it's always really helpful when someone just says what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And that's what David does here. In fact, there's three Psalms that David actually writes during this season of his life in chapter 21 and 22. And one of those Psalms is Psalm 56. You may even want to put in your Bible in chapter 21, somewhere around Verse 12 or 13, just put Psalm 56 as a reference. So when you're reading here, you're like, oh, yeah, okay. And you're able to know this is what David was thinking. This is what David was feeling at this moment. And in Psalm 56, we read at the very beginning, this was a a mictum of David. It just means a tune or a song of David. A mictum of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. It's just a good reminder to us, just as an aside, that when we're reading the Bible, it doesn't matter if it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, these stories are not just written out of thin air or out of a vacuum. These are real people in real situations that are often demanding real faith in context of real suffering. And so we can find great encouragement, loved ones. Just to know that there isn't anything we're going to experience in our life that the word of God doesn't speak to. That someone else, someone else hasn't already experienced and is able to give a word of encouragement. The, the word of God is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And so we see here David, a real man in a real situation needing real faith. And in Psalm 56 we read, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? David is confessing he's afraid. He has fear. But having fear isn't a sin. Sometimes we think that just being afraid, oh, I'm sinning against God. No, there's it's times where we're afraid. It's what you do with your fear that is important. And we see, finally, David is not trusting in himself to handle his own fear. He's bringing it to God. He's surrendering it to God. He's no longer relying on himself and pridefully or arrogantly trusting in himself to come up with a plan, like lying to get what he thinks will save him, like bread and swords. No, he's trusting in God. It's God that I'm going to trust now. In fact, In Psalm 34, that's another psalm you can write in the margin there. Psalm 34, David writes at this time when he's in Gath Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David is aware now that he ought to be condemned for his lying lips, but he's now brokenhearted. That same word, brokenhearted, is what he uses in Psalm 51, which indicates a a humble and contrite heart. A heart that isn't puffed up anymore and relying on itself, but is surrendered and submitted to God. Saying, I don't know what to do, God, but my eyes are on you. I'm coming to you. I submit to you. I submit to your plan, your provision, your protection. David is now turning to God again. That God, putting his hope in God that you will save and you will protect. And the Lord does. Back in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, we see... In verses 13 to 15, how God doesn't allow Achish to even recognize David, but just really dismisses David as a as a madman, a lunatic, and kicks him out of the city. And David escapes with his life, miraculously going free. And of course, David sings about this in Psalm 34. He says, Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now before we move on to chapter 22, after reading this section of scripture, we can sometimes begin to wonder, so what does it look like to tell the truth? In times where you are feeling pressure to lie and temptation to fib, what does it look like in those moments of fear to actually speak truth? Ephesians 4.15 says that we are to speak truth in love. And so if we could kind of just distill down into a statement what that means, I would probably say this. We are to aim to always say as much truth as possible with as much love as possible in all situations. We are to aim to always speak as much truth as possible with as much love as possible in all situations. I was driving down Queen Street a couple of years ago, actually after church, and I saw an accident happen. And in that situation, I was a witness. It happened just in front of me. And so when the police officer was asking me for some details of what happened, I wanted to give him as much truth as possible because I thought that was most loving as possible so he could determine the truth of what actually happens. I wanted to put all of the information on the table, say all the truth. But there's some situations in which saying less truth is actually more loving to the person you're speaking to. And when I say saying less truth, I don't mean you're saying untruth. I'm saying that you're just not giving all the details of the truth. You're not disclosing every detail of truth. What I mean by that is, one example, I was recently traveling in the car with one of my daughters. We are heading off to, I think, McDonald's or something like that, and she's just reading in the Bible, in the Samuels. She's in 2 Samuel, reading ahead a little bit, and she comes across a story of Amnon and Tamar, and she just simply asked me, Dad, what is rape? It's... <laughs> <laughs> In that moment, you're just praying, God help, God help, God help. And, I, and we want our children to ask us these kind of questions, right? We, we don't want them to get these things figured out on the playground. We as parents want to be there to be able to answer these questions. But I wasn't ready to answer that on the way to McDonald's, and so I'm just praying for God's help. And Now, it would be unwise of me and really unloving of me now to just blurt out every detail and every fact that I know to be true about that topic to my daughter. That would be unloving. But I want to speak truth. And so I want to say as much truth as possible and as much love as possible. And love actually moves me and shapes what I say so that I'm able to speak truthfully but in an age-appropriate way. That would be an example of how We want to say as much truth as possible with as much love as possible, but sometimes not sharing all the details of truth is actually most loving. Or you can have a situation where saying what is true, sometimes we want to dial back on the details of all that is true because that is most loving because of who we're talking about, not just someone we're speaking to. And this could be, I mean, this is as. True in the example of hide-and-seek in your own house, and one of your kids who's it comes up to you and says, where's Susan? And you're like, you know. You don't just say, I don't know. You say, I know, but I can't tell you. Go find her. That's a simple situation, but you can dial that up and ratchet it up in a massive way. What happens if the person who's actually seeking another person wants to kill them, and you know where they are? Thankfully, the scripture gives us these kinds of scenarios. Again, it's sufficient for all of life and godliness. And we find a similar situation in Joshua 2, verse 5, where Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho, is hiding two spies of Israel. Rahab was a Canaanite. She lived in Jericho. And you'll remember that Israel has been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and has just come now into the promised land, crossing the Jordan River, and are now camped in front of Jericho. And Rahab has turned her heart to the Lord and trusted in the Lord. And when these two spies come into Jericho, she hides them. Because the officials and the soldiers in Jericho come to her house and say, where are those spies that came into the city? And what does Rahab do? She lies. She just flat out lies. She says, I didn't know there were spies. I didn't know they were Israelites. And they left. They're out of the city. Go run. Go try to find them. All the while, they're hiding in her roof. Now, It's important to note that in Hebrews 12, 31, God actually commends Rahab, not for her lie, but for her faith. He commends her for her faith in the Lord and for her sacrificial love that she would be willing to lay down her life and risk her life for the sake of another. That's beautiful in God's eyes. He commends her for her faith. But he does not commend her for her lie. God never commends or commands or condones lying in any situation. He commends her faith. Thankfully, we have a gracious God. A gracious God who not only forgives us of our sins of lying but is able to work all things together for good according to His good and sovereign purposes so that He can even take our poor decisions and poor speech and work them for good according to His plans. God is a God of truth. And we ought always, always to aim to speak as much truth as possible with as much love as possible in every situation. Sometimes that looks like laying every detail of truth that we know on the table. Sometimes it's more loving to withhold some details of truth, but we're still speaking truthfully. Sometimes it means silence, but we always speak the truth. Because God is a God of truth. And we're made in his image. And so that means that we're to talk the way God talks. And God is a God of truth. It says in Titus 1 verse 2 that God never Lies, in fact, in Hebrews 6:18 it says, "It's impossible for God to lie, because in First 1 John 1:5, 1, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Even more so, as believers in Christ, we are being transformed into the image of Christ, that we might reflect Jesus in all that we do, especially in what we say. The gospel transforms our lips and our tongue and our mouth, that we might speak like Jesus. And how did he speak? Hebrews 4.15 says, In every respect he was tempted as we were, but without sin. 1 Peter 2 says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. There it is. Continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is called the Holy One, the True One, whose words are trustworthy and true, God incarnate, full of grace and truth. Those aren't mutually exclusive, but gloriously complementary. Jesus never lied. I mean, that is amazing. He's on earth for over three decades, never lied, always said, truth. In every situation, he always answered truthfully. Sometimes he would answer truthfully with a clear statement when he was asked about, you know, should we pay taxes or not? And he said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Sometimes he would answer truthfully with a story or a parable, like when he was asked, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And he gave the parable of the good Samaritan. And sometimes Jesus would answer a question truthfully by responding with a question. Like when he was asked why he had authority, where did this authority come from, from just to clear out the temple like he did. And he responded with a question, well, where did John's authority come from with his baptism? Was it from heaven or was it from man? He always spoke truthfully. There were times where Jesus was questioned by the authorities, like in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was with his 12 disciples. And Jesus did not cripple under the pressure to lie, but he speaks truthfully and says, Here I am, and here are my disciples. Now let them go and take me. Even when he was standing before Pilate, I remember the context. Rome was ruling over Israel at the time. This was an enemy nation. And he's being interrogated by Pilate. And it says that Jesus gave him no word. You don't have to lie. Jesus refused to lie. In every situation, he spoke truthfully. Sometimes he would give a whole sermon on the Mount worth of truth. Sometimes it would just be a few words of truth. Sometimes it was the whole silence of truth. But either way, he always spoke truth all the time. He never lies. And now, how can Jesus... Do this. How, how can he just keep telling the truth? I mean, no one suffered like Jesus. No one was put into squeezing situations like Jesus, and yet he always, always spoke truth. How did he do it? He wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid. As we read in First Timothy, sorry, First Peter 2, it says he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He kept entrusting his soul to a faithful creator while doing good and speaking truthfully. Even Christ's enemies acknowledged this. In Matthew 22, the the Pharisee said, Teacher, we, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Jesus wasn't afraid of people. He wasn't afraid of what they thought of him because he knew what God thought of him. He knew what God had said to him and he believed it and he kept trusting in God and asking for God's wisdom in each and every situation. What does it look like for me to speak as much truth as possible with as much love as possible right now when I'm speaking to this Pharisee or this prostitute or that tax collector? What is wisdom? And love and truth look like right now, and God kept leaning on God, that if He said the truth, God would protect him. If He said the truth, God would provide. God would be his safety. He was trusting in God. But loved ones, it was way better than that. Jesus not only never lied. But he came as the word of truth, full of grace and truth, that he might rescue and save liars like you and me. He came so that he might rescue us from all the ways in which we have lied or are lying or will lie. He's taken all of those sins and has taken them on himself, dying, paying its death penalty and rising again that we might have hope, that we might live and have a new heart and new lips that speak truth the way he has spoken truthfully to us. Jesus loves to save liars. God always has. God has always loved to save liars. I mean, go go right back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, David is is lying and, and saying he's blaming shifting and putting all the blame on his wife that he ate of the fruit. That's a lie. But God loved him and forgave him and saved him so that, Dave, or so that Adam could now begin speaking truth again. He calls his wife Eve. Sarah, when she was told that she would have a son after 90 years of infertility, she laughed in God's face. And God says, why do you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. And she lied. But God loved her and forgave her and Saved her and gave her a son and said, name him Laughter. His name's Isaac. Isaac would grow up and have a son, and he would name one of his sons Jacob. Now, Jacob, you'll remember, means liar. It means the one who grabs the heel, who trips people up and deceives them and lies to them. And he lived to fulfill his name. He lied so bad and deceived his Dad and his brother so bad that he actually had to run away and flee to another country so he wouldn't be killed. And yet God pursued him, loved him, forgave him, saved him, protected him. And God even calls himself, I am the God of Jacob. I'm the God of this former liar. Isn't that beautiful? God's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to say, Yeah, I'm his dad. He used to do that. Not anymore, though. I've changed his heart. He has new lips. He now speaks truthfully. It's the God we serve. Even Peter lied three times and denied, even knowing Jesus. But what did Jesus do after his resurrection? He pursued Peter, loved Peter, forgave Peter. And reinstalled Peter as an apostle to go and go to all nations and tell them about Jesus, this forgiver of liars, this man of truth, this savior full of grace and truth who comes to liars and forgives them and saves them and rescues them and gives them a new heart and a new mouth that they might speak truth and grow in speaking truth the way Jesus has always spoken truth. God loves to save liars, and David is beginning to realize this. He's turning from his lying ways and turning back to God, and God has forgiven him. And it's now beginning to help him. And this can be our experience as well. That in faith, when we turn to God, we're actually now freed. Freed to trust God. You see, fear enslaves us. When we're afraid, we get get trapped and we get enslaved in our fear. And we're tempted to sin and lie. But when we're trusting in God, we're free to trust God. God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to tell the truth. And David now trusts God and it frees him. And specifically, it frees him to confess his sin. To confess his sin. Now, one of the hardest things David had to do was to confess his sin after the fact that he realized what his sin had done. That his sin had actually caused hundreds of people to die. We skipped over this, but if you go back to chapter 21 and verse 7, there's this little verse tucked in there that lets us know that there's someone else in Nob. When David had come to Nob and spoken to Ahimelech, there was someone else in the tabernacle that day. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, from Edom. Edom was a neighboring nation that hated Israel and warred against Israel. And here was Doeg, probably a, a captive from war, but nonetheless had worked his way up the ranks and was now one of Saul's chief herdsmen. He was a part of the, the really, the, the commanders in Saul's service. Saul had a lot of trust in Doeg, and he happened to be at the tabernacle that day, overhearing, eavesdropping a little bit in on that conversation between David and Ahimelech. And we see in chapter 22, verses 6 to 19, one of the most gruesome stories in all of the Bible, where Saul is sitting in Gibeah with a spear in hand. Anytime you read about Saul, he's always got a spear. Can you imagine going to work, and every time you had a meeting with your boss, he just put the rifle on the desk? Just a little unsettling. But here is Saul, always with a spear in his hand. I mean, he's just so paranoid, so lusting after power and control to retain the kingdom even though he he knows he's lost it and it's been given to David. He's trying to keep all power to himself and he's there with a spear in every conversation and he's asking all of his officials, where's David? You're Benjaminites and I've shown favoritism to you and partiality to you and given you lands that even didn't belong to you. Why aren't you telling me where David is? And no one's answering him because they all realize Saul's a lunatic. He's really losing it here. Except Doeg. Doeg's there. He's like, I I know where David is. Yeah, I heard David talk to Ahimelech and Nob. And he recounts what happened and what was said. What's interesting is not so much what Doeg said, but what he didn't say. The things he'd said to Saul were true, but he limited the details of truth. Not out of love, but for maximum evil. He neglected to tell Saul that David was lying. Doeg knew that Saul was after David and David was fleeing. And he neglected to say that Ahimelech didn't know. He wasn't in on this. He was acting in ignorance. But he frames it in such a way to, to make Ahimelech and David look as treacherous as possible. And Saul is filled with rage, and he commands not just Ahimelech, but all of the priests and Nob, every 85 persons, every priest, all of them to come and stand before him. And he condemns them to death. And he tells and orders his officials, kill the priests of the Lord. And they sit there, hands in pockets, they're like, "We're we're not doing that. And so who does Saul turn to? turns to Doeg, his faithful servant. You kill them, and he does. He slaughters 85 priests. And if that wasn't enough, then Doeg goes to Nob and finishes the job and kills every remaining man, woman, infant, donkey, and sheep. Everything that had breath, he utterly massacres. Except one person. One person escapes, Abiathar. Abby Abiathar Abby escapes with his life. He is the last remaining priest, the last descendant of Eli. And so, sadly, the fulfillment of God's prophecy to Eli comes true. Back in First Samuel two, verse thirty-three. God prophesied to Eli because of your sin and the sins of your sons the priesthood will be removed from you and everyone in your family will die but the sword of men except one one will escape with his life and weep his eyes out and that one is Abiathar and he escapes and he flees to David and when he finds David he says in chapter 22 verse 21 Saul has killed the priests of the Lord. And when David hears this, he's at a crossroads. Do I tell him? Do I tell him why? Do I killed your whole family? Do I tell him that it was because of me? Because I lied to Ahimelech? He does. David tells tells Abiathar the truth and confesses he says in verse 22 I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house David saying my lie killed your family blame me forgive me David is trusting in the Lord and speaking truth And letting the chips fall where they may. But his faith is not merely moving him to confess his sin, but also, secondly, to accept responsibility. He accepts responsibility. The responsibility of caring for those who have been affected by his sins. He says to Abiathar, stay with me. Stay with me. I will provide for you. I will protect you. You stay with me. He almost welcomes Abiathar Arthur into, like a family member, into his own house. David is moved to care for the oppressed and the poor, the, those who are fleeing for their life, those who are in need. He wants to gather them. Those who are, who are just crushed in spirit. Come. Come. Why? Is it because David's so confident? Because he's so awesome? No, he's crushed in spirit. And he's turning and trusting in the Lord. God is the one who will protect and provide. And David's been doing this really since he escaped from Gath and his eyes were awakened and he turned back to the Lord. Back in verse 2 of chapter 22, it says, Everyone in Israel who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was embittered in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him, that's David, about 400 men. These men had wives. These men had children. There's well over 1,000 people with David in the caves of Adullam. And what is he doing? All these outcasts, all these people who are oppressed and distressed coming to David because he was oppressed. He was distressed. He was poor and needy. And yet he was trusting in God. And then, of course, there's David's parents. David's parents come to him. They are in Bethlehem, remember, and they flee because they're like, Saul kind of runs like the mafia. If he can't get David, then he's going to kill his family and threaten to kill his family if he can't get David. And so they flee from Bethlehem and find David in the caves of Adullam. And David cares for them and loves them. And when things get Way too dangerous for them. He personally escorts them out of Judea, south of the Dead Sea, and then up into a place called Moab and asks the king of Moab, may I keep my parents here? He asks some distant relatives. He brings them to some distant relatives and asks for their safekeeping there so that they wouldn't get caught in all the danger that David is in. Now Why Moab? Well, you'll remember David's great-grandmother, Ruth. Ruth was from Moab, and isn't it amazing that God would work a century before David, and bringing an ancestor of his from Moab to marry a guy named Boaz, so that a hundred years or more later, David would be able to return to Moab and entrust his parents to some distant relatives there for safekeeping. Isn't it amazing how God works? It's no random chance that you just happen to be in Brampton right now. You don't know that in 137 years from now, one of your great great granddaughters or grandsons is going to have an event in their life that is very significant, and it's going to be related because in 2018, you were in Brampton. That's how God works. God sees everything, He sees the end from the beginning. And here, David is seeking to care for his parents. And he's caring for these 400 men and all their family. And he's caring for Abiathar. Why? Why is he doing this? Because God's word has said that he is to be a shepherd to the oppressed. He is to be a, a shelter for those who are in need and in are poor and outcasts. He, he is to be the one who speaks truth. He is to be the one who, who honors his mother and father. He's trying to obey God's commands. But he, David's not trusting in himself. He knows he can't provide, He can't protect this. His faith is in the Lord. And this is the last point that we'll look at today, is that in faith, David, David is able to trust in God and find His safety and security. In him and in him alone. David is so confident in God that he will protect, that he will provide. David's done with running away and trusting in himself and I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. No, he's trusting in God now. God is the one who protects me. God is the one who provides for me. God is with me. He's so confident in that. He's, he's saying, come, come join me. Because if you join yourself with me, you join yourself with God. And God will be with you and God will protect you. David's not looking to himself. His eyes are so locked in on God, he's like, come, come to me. God has assured me from his word, he is with me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. In fact, at the very end, it says, with me, you shall be in safe keeping. David is so confident in God to provide, not only for him, but for everyone who gathers with him. And this is true of David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. All throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we've been looking at how the life of David points us to, again and again, to Jesus and his life. That whatever happens in David's life, Jesus is able to fulfill on a greater level. And this is true again. We see how not only did Jesus not lie, but is able to come as a word of truth and save liars. But he is also the one who accepts responsibility to shepherd all of us who are poor and needy of spirit. And come to him. He's the one who says, come, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened with the sin of lying and come to me. I want to wash you clean and forgive you and give you a new heart and new lips to be able to speak truth. He's the one who comes to us as the true bread of heaven. He says in John, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is the one that we are to join ourselves to and abide in. And when we do that, he makes a promise to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that surely he'll be with us always to the very end of the age. He will be our shelter and our refuge of strong tower. He will be the one to protect us. He's the one who ultimately says, with me, you will be in safe keeping. Not only in this life, but in the one to come. Beloved, we ought always to trust Jesus, our Savior. He is the one who has the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? As we go this coming week, stay in the safe keeping of Jesus. Actively remember that you have joined yourself to Christ. And abide in his safekeeping. And that'll free you. It'll free you to speak the truth and love in every situation that he's going to shepherd you in. In this coming week. In this coming year of 2018. And for your whole life. Let us abide in him. Let us trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your mercies and your kindness. You are good to us and you have only been good to us. Your word says that surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, you have sent your son so that we could join ourselves to him. And in him find our safe keeping. And in him we find shelter. In him we are provided for in every way with the bread of heaven that we might eat and never hunger again. In him we find our shelter. God, I pray this would be true of all of us and the real hard confusing situations that we're in right now with an aunt or uncle or a family member, with a coworker or with a supervisor. Which it's hard. We feel hard pressed. God, help us keep our eyes fixed on you the author and perfector of our faith, so that in faith we may always know how to speak as much truth as possible and as much love as possible. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.